0: Welcome to The Culture, a weekly show about the latest in the world of pop culture, arts, entertainment and extremely rich people with daddy issues. I'm Osman Faruqi and this week on the show we are talking about the return of HBO's Succession. It's been a long two years since we were blessed with new episodes of what is, I think, one of the greatest TV dramas ever produced. The first two seasons of Succession were critically acclaimed, but they failed to attract big audiences. But the hype has been steadily building as more and more people have streamed the show during the pandemic and lockdowns. I can't really remember this amount of anticipation for a series return since maybe Game of Thrones. There are Succession billboards all over town, everyone is talking about it, and... We're now just a couple of days away from the premiere of Season 3 on October 18th, and it is, I think, the best season yet. To help preview the new season of Succession and to talk about how this show became such a phenomenon, I'm excited to welcome back writer and critic for The Saturday Paper, Tara Kenny. Tara, thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me. Good to be here again.
0: I'm very excited to get stuck into talking about Season 3 with you. We've both been lucky enough to watch most of it. Our preview is going to be spoiler-free, but before we get there, I want to have a conversation with you about what makes a show like this so successful and so watchable. Why don't we start by just running through what the show is about? Because I think it does operate on a few different levels, and it's probably a Good starting point for us to unravel why it's so compelling.
1: Well, I think the, to give you like the absolute spark notes, it's a show that's about a powerful, fictional, um, dynastic media family called the Roys, who preside over an organization called Waystar Royco.
2: Thank you all for making it. We're going to be the number one media conglomerate in the world. The key here is act like a happy family. We're the Osbournes and I'm daddy fucking Warbucks, okay?
0: Good, fine.
1: Nobody here has any glaring substance abuse issues that almost brought down the company, right? So Waystar Royco is mainly a media organisation and then they also do uh, cruises on yachts and then they have theme parks. So basically they're like this um, large multi-billion dollar organisation of media and entertainment.
0: Kind of like News Corp meets Disney in a way.
1: Yeah. And I guess like the really central thing about it is that it's a family run organisation. So the, the patriarch, Logan Roy, is this powerful figurehead who started the company.
2: Right, You're fired! With that exit package. Asha, goodbye. Somebody sent a telegram to uh, Alona telling her she's no longer required and my best to her cancer. I think we all need to take a beat. Meh, 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 fucking Don't meh. Stop. Is it wise to fire the board with the share price this week? Heading into a political fight. Take it like a fucking man. You're out. You're fucked. You tried to kill me, but you failed and you're dead. Now
1: Fuck off. He is now in his 80s, so he's not necessarily at death's door, but he's beyond the age where more normal people who can afford it stop working, Um, but he's not a normal person. He's somebody who has defined his entire identity around being this really powerful businessman. So he's in a position where he he doesn't want to give up um, his empire. I think in part because he doesn't trust his kids, which is potentially for good reason. So he has four kids, um, Connor, Shiv, Roman and Kendall, and they... They're in a position where they're all fighting with one another to try and uh, eventually be the the chosen one who will end up leading the organisation. They've kind of grown up with their father who's very work-obsessed and is not able to to show love to them in a kind of normal and warm way. So in a way, I think their desire to run the organisation is them wanting to be validated. Um, And then it's also that they just kind of lack self-knowledge and none of them really know who they are outside of um, being part of this really powerful media dynasty.
0: You want to push through a massive, politically sensitive buy-up. And I'm reading this over my morning cappuccino. It says your family is a horror show and it's destroying America. Hmm.
2: Maybe we should buy this.
0: (laughs) Kendall launched a lawsuit against you you have fired half of your board. Your COO is a fucking joke. Oh Bro, that's what people are saying. Who cares if it's true? People say that he's a cooked up Dauphin that doesn't know shit from Shinola and that the two of you aren't even talking to each other, which I'm getting a vibe of.
1: Now- I think, in short, the show is about super powerful and wealthy families, so I think that mm. is not necessarily something that's, like, relatable um, to everyone. It's a very specific experience and the stakes in the family are a lot higher because there's um, there's so much to lose and there's so much power and money to gain there. Um, but I think the other side of it is it is just about families and family relationships in general and all the emotions that are tied up there, all the resentment and expectations and um, jealousy and resentment that are part of family dynamics. It's my work, Dad. You have people understand. Work?
2: It's rebellion. Sabotage. Oh yeah, of course, because it's all about you. Yeah, not that I might be in agreement with his points about the purchases or just maybe his whole philosophy. Philosophy? This is nothing but a a miserable, deliberate attempt to undermine my whole business strategy. You don't have a business strategy, Dad. Your whole business model is, uh, is based on seducing presidents. You're a really high-class hooker. No offence. Hey.
1: Fuck off. I think that makes it really compelling because even if your family is not, you know, a multi-billion dollar dynasty, I think everyone can kind of relate to these complex emotions around family.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why the show is so interesting because there are so many points at which you can engage with it like you can watch it as a family drama and you can relate to the tension among siblings the tension between parents and kids you can also watch it for the dark satire that it is about american wealth and in particular the conservative media landscape it also you know skewers politics including liberal you know center left kind of politics in america right now there and it's also just very, very, very funny, and I think I probably enjoy all the different elements of it coming together. But I think probably why it's been so successful is how many different layers there are to it. I want to pick up on on one of the things you talked about in the in that excellent summary is this idea of dynasties. And so when I was talking about how I see Waystar Royco as uh, sort of conglomeration of, of News Corp and Disney. I guess in some ways, the most obvious comparison to the show, and it's one that the creators and the actors aren't shy about making themselves, is to the Murdoch empire in particular, questions around who will succeed Rupert Murdoch as the head of News Corp when he eventually retires or passes away he just had his (laughs) 90th birthday so I think probably Mm -hmm. passes away is the better metric we've been covering the kind of real world succession intrigue on our other podcast 7am and it's so interesting hearing about how his sons Lachlan and James uh, you know have been at different points more likely and then less likely to take over from him and it feels like a lot of that is inspiration for the show Talk to me about some of the real-world dynasties and media empires that Succession is riffing off.
1: I feel like I know way too much about the Murdochs after sort of really diving into all this research while writing a review for Succession, Um, but... One thing that I found out was that Jesse Armstrong, who's the writer and creator of um, Succession, that so before he wrote Succession, he had actually written a a screenplay about Rupert Murdoch's 80th birthday party Mm. and so that never ended up getting made, um, which is very sad because I would kill to see that. Totally. But, um, yeah, he obviously kind of was interested in the Murdochs and had them um, in his mind. And I've heard in different places like that, they don't want to explicitly say that succession's about the murdochs because they don't want to get sued which i'm sure i'm sure they would get sued um, but then i also think that it is probably more interesting for it not to specifically just be about that one family and for them to kind of have the freedom to draw from different things.
0: Do you know, just really quickly, Mm -hmm. do you know the story about how at Rupert Murdoch's 90th birthday, his daughter Elizabeth, uh, who's a TV producer, made a kind of video reel of his life and when they played it, it actually had the succession theme song under it?
1: No. Oh, so this is recently.
0: This is last (laughs) month. This is September.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. I didn't know that, but I have heard Elizabeth say before that she really likes the show even though it's hard to watch and then um, James said he, like, has never watched the show, which I find hard to believe. But There's um, no way they
0: haven't watched it. They are all <laughs> watching it for sure. Yeah,
1: I think there's there's a lot of... There's so many, so much crossover between the Murdochs um, and the Roys and, yeah, as you mentioned, Lachlan and James and also Elizabeth to an extent, but I think she was sort of left out of it a bit because of her gender, hmm. um, similarly to Shiv um, hmm. being hmm. overlooked.
0: Yeah, and you were saying that it's the, the Murdochs are clearly a big part of it, but they're not the only part and the sort of flexibility that that gives the show's creators to talk about some of the other families and dynasties. Tell me about some of them.
1: Yeah, so another one that's really scandalous and quite fun is um, Robert Maxwell. So he is a British media mogul um, and he's also Ghislaine Maxwell's dad. He was kind of known to be a very like bullying and brutish person. Um, Apparently he used to like piss off the top of his company's buildings onto like passers-by below and would leave the bathroom door open um, while he was at work. So yeah, I think that Logan Roy's kind of brutishness definitely seems to have, um, shades of Robert Maxwell. Mm. And then also, um, yeah, Robert Maxwell died, um, by like an accident on a yacht. He fell off a yacht. Um, and there was a big scandal afterwards because it was, um, found out that he had been like embezzling hundreds of millions of dollars from his employees' pension funds. And then his two sons, um sort of had to publicly take the hit and they, they went to trial, but they weren't found guilty in the end. But there's also speculation that it was um, actually a suicide. So yeah, th- it's, there's a lot of wild media dynasties and dynasties in general. Mm.
0: I want to ask you about why you think the show has become such a phenomenon. And on one level, it seems kind of obvious because it's a really excellent show. I think the the writing is so sharp. Jesse Armstrong, who is the showrunner for this show, he previously uh, wrote for Peep Show. And people say that, you know, how did he go from, you know, such an irreverent British comedy to something as sharp and biting as Succession? But his career is super interesting. He also wrote for uh, a show called The Thick of It, um, which I think is one of the greatest uh, works of television in modern history. It's a extremely... Uh, vicious and dark British political satire, uh, created by Armando Iannucci. He co-wrote *In the Loop* with Armando, which is the movie based on that he's written for Veep. And I sort of see a lot of that kind of gallows—both the kind of gallows humor of looking at these people who are so powerful, whether it's you know British politicians in the case of *The Thick of It*, or literally the President of the United States in Veep—and exploring the kind of dark side of what actually happens in their their insular bubbles. But then something that you don't often see in American shows, and I think Veep did this and it kind of broke the mold and it freaked out a lot of Americans, is just like a lot of swearing, like a lot of Mm -hmm. really, really vicious, funny, and really mean swearing. And I think the thick of it, sort of set the benchmark for that. That show had uh, an actual swearing consultant, Simon Black, I think it was, whose job it was, was to come on the show and to beef up just the dialogue <laughs> with enormous swears.
1: Oh, wow, a good dream job. It's a fucking lockdown right oh, now. Come off Stay it. Welcome. We're not in a
0: prison drama, are we? We are in a prison
2: drama. This is the fucking Shawshank Redemption, right? But with more tunnelling through shit and no fucking redemption. Never mind your fucking toys. Play with that. Go and stand in that fucking corner. Stand over there, Right. And do not move or I will perform a fucking, living fucking autopsy on you with a fucking rusty speed and I'll have your kidneys for fucking cufflinks. How are
0: you doing? And that thread <laughs> runs through succession as well, right? It is so sharp in its dialogue. I think that's a huge part of what makes it good. It's my fucking company. You are a fucking nobody. Oh, Jesus Christ. She fucking
2: amateur out at the fucking circus. People come to us because we don't sell them on anything. No packet of fucking bleeding heart, United Nations, Volvo, gender bender, horseshit. Why can't he come to us?
1: Well, I guess he's the president. Uh,
0: fucking Californian shrunken little raisin.
2: He's selling me things I
0: want. To me, the cast as well is just next? next level. You think about the top eight, nine, ten people in this show. Brian Cox, Jeremy Strong, Kieran Culkin, Sarah Snook, Nicholas Braun, Matthew McFadden, Alan Ruck none of those are misses. They are incredible, Mm. incredible choices. And then when you have that kind of writing, you have that kind of cast and you have a script and a story that is contemporary as well. Like it's about this family, it's about wealth, but it's also about America and the world right now. And the kind of, you have a show that also feels contemporary because it's about the way of the world now. Like you have More so in season one and season two, episodes that talk about contemporary political issues, the rise of the far right, the power that conservative media has. And I guess, to me, that's probably, it's probably a combination of those things that means so many people want to watch the show. I mean, I do find it really funny. I see a lot of journalists I know who work for the Australian newspaper and Australia News Corp outlets in general post really excitedly about being keen to watch (laughs) season three of Succession. And I'm like, this is about you. Like, this is you. (laughs) You're
1: like, you're living it.
0: I know. And I wonder, like, maybe there's an element of, it's like, oh, cool. This is like the new Game of Thrones. We're going to root for a certain character to win And, like, let's watch it on that level. It goes back to what I was saying before, is that maybe there's a bunch of different reasons why people like it and they might not all be the same. But is there something to you that you think stands out or unlocks why this show has become so critically and commercially successful?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I find to be interesting about it is um, the sort of moral ambiguity of it. So, so yeah, obviously all of the characters are kind of implicated in this waster, Royco, evil machinery. So, you know, it could depend on what your politics are, like how evil that you think that is. Mm.
0: But
1: obviously, like last season, the scandal about how they'd been covering up the sexual abuse and harassment of um, employees and the dancers on the cruise ships and then um, covering up the deaths of migrant workers. So I do think, yeah, the sort of moral ambiguity of being able to like dislike and like these characters at once and um, not really have like good or bad guys in a really clear way in the show. I think that's really compelling.
0: I think that's a really good point. And there's two bits of that I want to just unpack a little bit more. I think One of the most common reasons why people say they don't watch the show, at least when I was trying to convince people to get into it in season one, is, oh, these people are all so unlikable. I don't know who to root for. And I found that such a frustrating criticism. Um, Are you a child? (laughs) I don't understand this desire that people seem to have where they want something that is so black and white, that is like, here is the good person, here is the bad person. This is not Sesame Street. This is a a, a Mm. real, (laughs) interesting, compelling, rich TV show that grapples with the real world. And it doesn't make it easy. Like, there, sure, there are some characters who are clearly villainous. And here's my mm. take, right? I don't really like any of the characters. There's no one in this show that I'm, quote, unquote, going for. I think if you're watching the show and you're like, oh, I want Shiv to take over, I want Kendall to take over, I kind of think you're missing the point of the show.
1: Because mm, you're like, none of them are, are good. None of these people <laughs> are good. Some
0: of them have literally killed people, and <laughs> even the ones that haven't are... Uh, witness to it and are part and parcel of covering it up and they're willing to do all that because they love the power the privileges and everything that comes with it the other thing about the show and i think what it's been doing so far and it goes to this question of what these people are fighting for what the children are fighting for and i think this is why the show hasn't deeper level to it and in a way It's, I mean, everyone wants to compare every prestige HBO drama to The Sopranos, but I think in a lot of ways, this show is the closest to a show like The Sopranos that I've seen in a long time. And I think The Sopranos, similarly, there were these two approaches to it, which is one, this show is full of terrible people doing terrible stuff. I don't want to watch it. Or yeah, Tony, I like it. Yeah, take down that mafia boss, Tony. Like, good on you. Like, congratulations <laughs> on rising to the top of the New Jersey mafia. And both of those things kind of miss the point, right? Yeah. It's like what that show did so well was it kind of made you sympathize with some of the most evil people in television. And then you catch yourself feeling for them when they go through a hardship. And then in the next scene, a completely innocent woman is brutally killed and you realize that these people are monsters, but that sits Mm -hmm. uncomfortably because five minutes ago you were crying when their relationship was in some sort of turmoil. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think that on that element, I think there's a lot of similarity to Succession. I think the other thing that The Sopranos captured was America in a state post 9-11 where the empire was waning and the cracks were there. And the whole kind of metaphor of The Sopranos was what Tony was fighting over, what the mafia was then, it was at the end. And and that's that famous line from the pilot of of The Sopranos where he says, do you ever get that feeling that, you know, you're coming into something at the end, all the good times have gone and you're picking over the pieces? And I think of succession in a similar way. Funnily enough, what the kids are fighting over is an empire in decline, is the end of Waystar Royco. It doesn't have the power it used to. It's threatened by digital disruption. It's threatened by competitors. It's being targeted for takeover. It's a center of scandals as its kind of misogynistic culture is finally being picked apart by by Congress. They're fighting over scraps, essentially, What do you think? I feel like I just sort of offloaded a lot of thoughts I've never articulated, but (laughs) um, did any of that make sense? Am I off the mark? What do you think?
1: No, no, it did. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually hadn't really thought of the um, Sopranos sort of comparison apart from obviously them being... um, these very like prestige TV shows and but I do think the whole I don't even know if it's like anti-hero thing but yeah I do think there are similarities there with the Sopranos knowing like all the awful things that he's capable of and you see him like yeah disposing of bodies and being horrible to his wife blah 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 but then you're also like oh he's so cute with the ducks and (laughs) (laughs) you know he's a nice dad (laughs) in some ways (laughs) um I have similar feelings on that with um, Succession, that even though, you know, that Kendall literally, like, let his dad cover up the fact that he killed a waiter accidentally, you're still kind of, like, at points you do kind of get behind him, I guess, because he's been so miserable for so long. You do find yourself, like, at moments, or I did anyway, feeling like, oh, yes, <laughs> he's going to overthrow his dad and then you realise he's just yeah, as bad. Yeah, yeah, totally. One thing that the show does really well is that it, depicts wealth but it doesn't fetishize it too much. Mm. So the characters are shown in these really grandiose and and beautiful and luxurious environments but most of the time they're all too, like, miserable to really even, like, see where they are or take any of it in. So for some of them with the Roy siblings, I think they've just, like, grown up in these environments their whole life so they don't really know anything else. And then with um, the more, like, outlier characters like... Tom and Greg, they kind of enjoy it sometimes but then they're also worried that they're going to go down or that they're kind of being embroiled in these scandals or whatever else is happening and the environments are like very beautiful but they're also often quite cold and sterile i think particularly the the corporate environments ought to be these kind of like manhattan offices that are like floor to ceiling views of the skyline and glass and everything but they don't really look like nice places to be in i think the the coldness of those physical environments is like mirrored in the characters and yeah, I do think there is a necessity for that sort of level of coldness as somebody who is existing as a really like uber, uber wealthy 1% person that you're you're just existing in these really atomized environments and kind of being chauffeured around from place to place and you're so disconnected from um, the day-to-day of, you know, normal people's lives that you do really have to um, have this cognitive dissonance and dehumanise other people and really believe on some level that you're worth more than other people, just to kind of keep living that life. So, yeah, I, I think that the, the logical end point of that is the acronym NRPI, No Real Person Involved, mm. um, which sort of comes out during the, uh, with the scandals um, last season. that They were using that acronym to kind of write off, um, like, the deaths of people, like sex workers or migrant workers, who are basically people who aren't powerful or just considered to be not quote-unquote real people in their, in their eyes. Logs. Incident in RPI. Uh, yeah, that's
0: uh, incident, no real person involved.
1: Uh-huh. And what does that mean?
0: That means it's a sex worker or a migrant worker at a foreign port, not involving a, a guest or a permanent member of staff. No real person involved.
1: And these shadow oh, logs I can't watch with with anymore. of this
2: record fucking bullshit.
1: And even sometimes people who are on their level, like even among the siblings, I think there is this real lack of empathy and inability to care or see where someone else is coming from.
0: Everyone is disposable if they're not in the family, right? Mm. What you were talking about, about the wealth, I think is interesting. I hadn't really thought about it a lot, but I think you're right, that there is this opulence that's on display, but it is really cold. Mm -hmm. And it's almost, I don't even know whether pleasure or joy comes from in that. And when you watch characters like Greg, who sort of starts out as an outsider and becomes more and more sucked into it, and he's experiencing it, it's not clear to me that he's having fun. And yeah, they really don't show the money side of things as something that is enjoyable.
1: Yeah, I mean, I found myself kind of feeling a little bit sorry for people who are born into families like this while watching the show, maybe like more James Murdoch not not feeling sorry for Lachlan, but, (laughs) you you know, you you do sort of feel, yeah, if there is like such a, a lack of love or all of these kind of inherited guilt and, yeah, it does seem like it's really not worth it.
0: After the break, we're going to talk about what to expect from the new season of Succession. So, Tara, we're just a couple of days away from the premiere of Season 3. It's been a long time. It's been two years since Season 2 finished. Uh, COVID has delayed things. There's an enormous amount of expectation for this show. HBO has released the first seven episodes to reviewers. Have you watched all seven of those?
1: I've watched all seven twice.
0: (laughs) Well, that's one of the interesting things about this show is that in the two year gap between, I've gone back and rewatched the first two seasons multiple times. I think season two is another level compared to season one. And rewatching it and re rewatching it does bring new insights and again it's a testament to both the writing and the acting on this show before we share some of our thoughts on season three i think it's worth recapping where we left things off because the first episode of the third season picks up in the immediate aftermath of the season two finale so run us through where things were left
1: Yeah, things were left in in, in a shitstorm, basically. So um, much of season two was focused on the fallout of this um, scandal. So the whistleblower had revealed um, that they'd been covering up the sexual abuse and the harassment um, deaths on board the cruise vacations. And then it kind of comes to a head where there's the, the finale where they're all on the yacht and they're trying to figure out who's going to be the blood sacrifice is the word that Logan uses.
2: I need one meaningful skull to wave. If the shareholders' meeting were tomorrow, we lose. I need to persuade a couple of big figures. So, anyone like to say anything? I'll take care of whoever it is. No one will be forgotten. Well, I, I mean,
1: I... There's that crazy scene where they're all kind of sitting around um, having breakfast and Logan asks them to, like, make a case for who they think it should be. So we've got, like, Shiv saying that it should be Tom at one point and everyone kind of pointing fingers at each other. Seriously, Jerry? To pay for cruises, we, we take out a senior woman? Haven't we, you know, kidding here, killed enough women already? I mean, I think the obvious choices, and I hate to say it because he's such a swell guy, is whew, top. Excuse me? And then, eventually, Logan decides that it has to be Kendall.
2: Do what? The top job. Oh, I don't know, maybe. Uh, you can say. I, well, I just, you know, you're smart, you're good, but I... I just don't know. What? Come on. You're not a killer.
1: So that is obviously extremely brutal and kind of shows just how how brutal he is as a person, that he's willing to let his son possibly go to jail. Basically, right at the end, we have Kendall going into a press conference, so um, we think that he's about to announce, like, what has been agreed upon, Mm. um, that it was all his fault. But then he turns on his dad at the final moment and he deems Logan unfit to lead and says, you know, it was him. Basically, he oversaw all of this. He knew about everything that was happening. And his reign ends today.
2: I have with me today copies of records that show his personal sign-off. How much those of us who executed his wishes bear responsibility is for another day. But I think this is the day his reign ends.
1: So, yeah, it was quite a mic drop to leave us on and make us wait two years.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I think the best thing about that ending was that the last shot is of Logan as his mouth kind of twitches into just the smallest hint of a smile and it's like he's, you said this at the start of this conversation that he doesn't really trust his kids. I think part of what is causing all this drama and tension is that he doesn't think any of his children are good enough to do what he does. Mm -hmm. And then ironically he sees that in Kendall as Kendall makes the move to have a go at him and it sort of suggests that there's an element of respect there even though Kendall has just kicked up the biggest shitstorm that the family's yet to face.
1: Yeah, he's like, that's my boy.
0: Yeah, totally, totally, <laughs> and which is insight how fucked up this family is. <laughs> and we've seen the posters that have been released from the marketing team at HBO, which keep showing different members of the family, different sides of this mm-hmm. line. So these questions of who's going to align themselves with who, are the kids going to join Kendall and taking down Logan, that's a constant question throughout the third season I found the first episode of the third season one of the most breathtaking hours of television I've ever watched. (laughs) I think it is so funny. It is so sharp. It is relentless. Like I've watched that Mm -hmm. episode three times and every time Mm -hmm. I pick up on something else and I'm still – my breath is still taken away by it. And it doesn't feel like one hour of television. It feels like the amount of stuff that happened. Mm it's like watching a three hour movie. It's like watching the freaking (laughs) Godfather. I don't know. It's not like I'm crazy talking about this show. Like I watch a lot of television and I'm a pretty Mm -hmm. cynical person, but I think in this third season of this show, they have elevated what Succession is about to another level. It's like they spent the first two seasons introducing us to these characters, setting the chessboard up. And in the third season, it is all just unleashed and everyone's motivations make sense. Everyone's you know pulling on threads that have been laid there for the past two seasons it's a roller coaster i can't get enough like what what's your reaction to it
1: i mean i kind of knew it was going to be really good because i do have a lot of faith in the writers of the show um but yeah i agree it's it it feels so tight and and actualized and yeah i was also reeling after watching the first episode and just like hell yeah <laughs> they did it. <laughs> they pulled this off. <laughs> you know, it continues the the dynamics and the relationships that that we've and the kind of alliances forming that um were in the first two seasons. but I think one thing that's exciting to see where it's heading is um obviously the what's going to happen between Kendall and Logan. So mm. for me, I feel like they've always been like the emotional center of the show. Kendall has been like trying to kind of. Distance himself from his father and overthrow his father, but his plans keep getting thwarted. So you know there was the vote of no confidence in the in the first season, and then that fell apart. Or then the hostile takeover. But um, you know, with the the death of the waiter, then he's kind of back like under his dad's thumb. Um, but this, obviously it's still, it, it is unclear like what's going to happen and that's kind of what the whole season is about. Um, but it does feel like this this like turning point um, and I guess because it's become so public and there's kind of no, there's a, yeah, it feels like there's not really a going back after the press conference and now it's like out in the public and he's said what he said. So it is like, oh, is Kendall going to finally become his own person and, yeah, I guess because you have seen him just in such distress in the past mm. season and such a shell of a human, um, you do, yeah, in a way it's like, okay, is he going to become a killer, quote, unquote, mm. um, not in the literal sense of the word and, like, have what it takes. um, Or I guess even outside of, like, whether he ends up leading Waystar Royko just... Is he going to kind of be someone who makes himself in the image of his dad and end up being this um, sort of tyrannical person because there are, like, hints of when things don't go his way that he can be quite, like, violently angry at people um, and... Also, he's quite absent with his own children, so it is like in some ways he's quite similar to Logan, Um, but then he does seem to like have a bit more humanity question mark maybe in some ways. So, yeah, I think it is this question of like who will Kendall become that is really fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, I know I'm probably sounding like the most film bro person ever first referencing The Sopranos, now referencing The Godfather, (laughs) but I do see, and I mean, all of these texts are sort of, they're timeless, right? Like King Lear, yeah. Beth, like these are very Shakespearean uh, themes. Mm. And I think you're spot on that Kendall has been positioned by the show as the kind of anti-Logan. But as time goes on, I think particularly in season three, and Jeremy Strong, who plays him, his performance is extraordinary. The It's not clear in which ways he's actually different to Logan. Like he wants to take him down. Mm -hmm. He wants to run the company. But you're right. The the way that he, his kids and his family make a comeback in this season, I think in season Mm. two they were almost entirely absent. We didn't really get a sense of his family life. But now they're back and they're back in a way to show how bad he is as a father. And so you're seeing those patterns develop and you're starting to realise that if Kendall does end up running this company, what exactly will he be doing differently? And his the the thing that he's kind of staking his reputation on this idea of the the family treating women and migrant workers in particular really badly. How much does he really care about that? Like, how much are his moves to sort of rebuild the image of Waystar Royco as a kind of more quote unquote woke company <laughs> genuine versus just a political tactic. Do you have thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think with with all of the siblings, really, I, I think it really is just because they're, they're younger than their dad and they're from another generation. I think the difference more is that they're able to recognise when something is going to be received by the public as being really messed up. So while Logan might just be like, you know, tell them to fuck off or who cares about the fact that we were telling, you know, shutting up these little girls or whatever. Um, Whereas as Kendall was going to say, oh, no, this is really bad and at least recognise that he at least has to, like, perform caring. Hmm. But, yeah, I I think all of them it does kind of seem like it's it's not necessarily that they're actually that different to their dad or um, actually care that much like, more about changing the company. I think they're just a bit more savvy and kind of able to, like, realise what they would have to do to, like, preserve the company despite all the bad stuff that it's done. But, um, yeah, they're still incredibly self-serving and I think the show is just generally quite cynical about corporate wokeness and, yeah, the capacity for companies to, I guess, really police themselves or really kind of want to bring about internal change if its running counter to their their economic interests.
0: Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. I think if I have one quibble with this season, and it's a really minor quibble because the show is really, really, really good – But as we've been saying, season three, all the stuff that was happening in the shadows, the kind of behind the scenes, subtle manipulation over who's going to take over the company, all of that's out into the open now. And so, so much of the show is just about these power plays. It's about each side building up their respective armies with lawyers and, and PR people and fighting this fight. And so, it's very much focused on the mechanics of the family dynamic. It's focused on the mechanics of the company, shareholder votes, all these kinds of things. And I think one thing that's missing, at least from the first half of season three, is a reminder of like what this company is and the power that it wields and the role that it plays in the kind of social political landscape. I think in season two, we had that episode safe room which is one of my favorites where you have the shooter going into atn which is the sort of you know stand in for fox news and this super bleak but funny interaction between tom and one of the anchors over whether he's a nazi or not okay so this is embarrassing but um just for the record and just so we have it um you are not and have never been a member of the nazi party of the united states have you Come on, Tom, are you serious? Nope. (sighs) Thank you. Sorry to have to even ask. Okay. Uh, And this other one that came up, just to fend this off, have you ever read Mein Kampf? And it's funny, Mm -hmm. but it's also like, yeah, no, no, Fox News has Nazis. Like, this is a thing that this company Mm. does is that they are promoting and mainstreaming white supremacist views in order to make money. And you kind of miss a little bit of that, I think. I think there's one episode, I think it's episode six, where you start to see that again when the uh, eight, the, the, the company Wastel is trying to pick who a future presidential candidate might be. And it's, like I said, it's a minor quibble because it's not as though I'm like, this show's bad for not doing that. But I think it would elevate the show to remind you that there is a real world element to this as well. And In many ways more so than ever, even more so than in season one, season two, the damage being wreaked by these kinds of organizations is significant and we are now grappling with it. And you can sort of forget when you're just watching these kids fight that there's actually an enormous amount at stake here for Mm. the future of the planet, really.
1: Yeah, I think um, what it sort of does show more this season is like the relationship between media and politics and I think just because you know how much Logan Roy is somebody who can kind of like switch his allegiances so fast, so like personal allegiances and political, He's, he's somebody who doesn't really like stand for anything apart from building his empire. So I think in that way it does show like the danger of having people like that having this outsize influence on public life and politics when they they don't really like give a fuck about people
0: We'll be back after this quick break. Tara, to round off the convo, I mean, I could talk to you for another three to four hours. and Maybe we'll have to do something when the finale drops and and do another (laughs) revisit. But one of my favorite things about the show, aside from the kind of main cast and the family, are all the characters around them. And I don't even want to call them secondary characters because it's a real ensemble and they all play extraordinary roles and they all do such a fantastic job. But I wanted to shout out some of the folk around the Roy family. I wanted to ask you who you thought were some of the MVPs of the show. My my number one guy, and this this is a weird pick, is Carl, the CFO. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I love him so much. He's just so <laughs> funny and weird and, like, both him and Frank, they're just these it's guys like that it. have been there for a long time. They get treated like absolute shit by <laughs> Logan I don't even really know what their end game here is. Every time there's a conversation about who could be the CEO, they sort of put their hands up and Logan just tells them to go fuck themselves immediately. In, um, in, in the first episode of season three, there's this really funny B-plot where Carl is just really hungry and wants a sandwich and it just keeps <laughs>
1: so popping
0: good. up again and again. And I think it's that kind of almost that light and shade that the show does that really makes it magic. But, um, yeah, are there any other characters like that that you think are, are really well done?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely I'm a, I like Frank for similar reasons that him and Carl both have this, um, yeah, just kind of very like checked out energy that they're just like collecting their very fat paychecks. Um, But they have, you know, just these hilarious lines that are like, wake me up and let me know if my career's over. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it is kind of like, they're just like hanging by a thread. Um, And then... I'm definitely Greg Hive.
0: Yeah, nice. I couldn't... Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I mean... I didn't mention Greg because I feel like it's just obvious. But, yeah, tell me about Greg. Walk us through why we all love Greg.
1: Well, I think there's the outsider kind of angle. Like, in the beginning, at least you're like, oh, this is kind of maybe how you would, like, feel or behave if you found yourself, like, around people like this, that he hasn't really grown up in that world and he's, like, very dithering and awkward and fearful.
2: This is uh, Craig, by the way. Cousin Craig. Craig, it's it's Greg. No. no? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Greg. Um, people sometimes like mistakenly call me
1: Craig, too. So I'll I'll answer to both. Yeah, he's also he does have ambitions, and he he's
0: making moves like the had, end of season two. Yeah, he's making moves. We see him there. He's up to stuff. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. He definitely does have good instincts, I think, and he is like self actualizing. I listened to this really funny interview with um, Nick Braun, the actor who plays Greg, and he was saying that before he started playing Greg, he, like, got into character by he was walking around an airport and would just go into shops and kind of, like, test how awkward he would be with people before they (laughs) (laughs) disengaged. So, like, just, like, asking too many questions or loitering a little too long, Um, and that is very Greg vibes, that he is able, he just, like, pushes past awkwardness when he wants something in a way that, like, most people don't, which is very funny to watch.
0: Yeah, and I think the interesting thing with Greg to watch in this season is as he starts making moves, as he starts taking sides, how much can he remain the kind of, like, audience surrogate in this show with a vague Mm. kind of moral framework and how much of that, you know, will they end up corrupting Greg and showing that you can't change this institution, you can't change how this stuff works? Or can someone like Greg withstand that or will he tap out i think that his character has this amazing ability to be both comic relief and then also a reminder of how evil all of this is at the same time
1: Mm -hmm. i hope greg never changes so (laughs)
0: um hey tara thank you so much for chatting to me about succession
1: cool thanks so much i'm i'm on the edge of my seat to see what happens in the next the last few episodes
0: The Culture is a weekly show from Schwartz Media. It's produced by Bez Zoder and Atticus Basto. Our editor-in-chief is Eric Jensen, and our theme music is by Hermitude. I'm Osman Faruqi. See you next week.